Hello, you're listening to Kopi Time, a podcast series on markets and economies from DBS Group Research. I'm Taimur Beg, Chief Economist. Welcome to our 46th episode. And yes, that marks one year of this podcast series. To mark this occasion, we are bringing back our inaugural guest, Bert Hoffman, who is Director of the East Asian Institute at National University of Singapore and Professor of Practice at the Lee Kuan Yew School. Bert is a World Bank veteran where he worked for 27 years, of which 22 were spent in Asia. He was the World Bank Country Director for China during 2014 to 2019, and also worked on Indonesia, the Philippines, Korea, and Mongolia. Bert Hoffman, welcome to Kopi Time. Pleasure to be back. Uh, yes, one year anniversary episode, Bert. A um, year ago, on the inaugural episode of Kopi Time, you sat with me physically across the table for a delightful one-hour chat. At that time, COVID was largely a China-specific matter. Well, we were both concerned about the emerging downside risk to growth. The historic worldwide lockdown that was about to come was beyond everybody's imagination. In fact, Bert, S&P 500 hit a record high that evening that we, when we recorded our podcast. Of course, everything changed after that, and the rest of the world followed in restricting mobility severely, causing a sharp contraction activity. Share with us your thoughts on the past 12 months. First, perhaps the global policy response, where did we succeed and where did we get it wrong? Well, yes, that was quite a, quite a podcast. And I think, I think on the China side, we were, we were not too far off. I mean, of course, the exact numbers look different, but uh, look, on the, on the world side, there is this one, two very big surprises uh, in, in my view. The one is how poorly the COVID epidemic was handled and how much confusion there was for a very long time. And so it took a very long time before uh, uh, sort of the, the, the right policies came into place. And even now, uh, one year in, you finally see some of the some of the measures that were common measures in East Asia after a couple of weeks that start to fall into place in, in Western Europe. So, so um, and I think a lot of people will have to learn from that uh, over time. But on the positive side is, is the economic reaction around the world. I mean, it, it was beyond my imagination at that point that if there were to be such a downturn, that there would be such a very, very strong policy response. And it may have come a little late, but it was definitely there. And if you look at the numbers, they are truly unimaginable. The 8, 10, 12% of GDP in, 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 in major countries uh, put, uh, put them in a stimulus plus then guarantees plus some other, some other measures to, to get the economy back on track. So in advanced economies that had the fiscal space, that had, if you want, the monetary space, uh, that was used to the max. And therefore, the, the, in the end, the economic impact, of course, it's, it's bad and, and, and it's historically bad to some extent, but not as bad as we, as we projected by mid-year. By mid-year, uh, that was sort of the nadir of, the, of, the, of, of, of pessimism, if you want. Uh, the IMF projected minus 5% for the world economy from a plus 3 in January, so an 8% swing. Uh, it it ends up to be it ends up to be minus three and a half for the United States. It was minus eight projected. It ends up minus three and a half. Uh, uh, European Union did, did did worse minus from minus ten projected in June in June 
to something of minus minus five percent. So so uh, sorry, minus seven percent for the for the European Union. But you so but you see that that indeed there, if you want it was an unexpectedly large stimulus and that and that did have a very positive effect for the broader economy that uh, that ended up not as bad as, as it would have ended up without that stimulus. Of course, for developing economies, the, the, the story is, is quite different. In, in part, they were much more limited. In They got affected a little later, that's one. They probably got affected a little bit more shallow, in part because of the, the, the composition of the population. It's a younger population, uh, a lot a lot of countries have to do with other types of viruses and there seems to be some higher level of immunity. In other words, the, the mortality rates are not as high as, as, as in the West and there may be some other factors. But of course, their, their, their economic stimulus was not as strong because they were constrained on the fiscal side, on the debt side. Um, um, so, so even though every effort was given, uh, it, uh, it, it meant that in the end, some, some of the developing economies uh, were hit harder than expected, even harder than expected in June. And India is probably the most prominent example, which, which now ends up by something of almost a 10% decline. And it was like a 4% decline in GDP projected uh, by, by mid-year. So, so that turns out to be worse than, than expected. But overall, so, so uh, a surprise on the downside how, how poorly COVID was handled around the world and on the upside on how much indeed countries went out of the way to, to, to protect the, their economies. Right, now the, the policy response has been uh, impressive to say the least. And I think through the course of this year and perhaps even next, next year, we will see uh, further uh, support, even if it is in somewhat smaller quantity than, than last year. Bert, um, which fault lines got revealed by the pandemic in the global economy in the most stark manner in your view? Well, I already mentioned a little bit the, the, the policy space between if you want advanced economies and developing economies and, and the real constraints that developing economies had in part because of the very liberal borrowing that many countries went through uh, in the run-up to COVID, and that had already become a concern, uh, and IMF and World Bank had already started to talk about it. There was a concern in general, borrowing of emerging and developing economies, and then specifically borrowing from China was under debate when I was still the country director in, in China, that, that became an issue 2018, 2019. Uh, but that was is, is one of the big, big divides, and if you want, so, so economically, uh, developing emerging economies across the board have a lot more, are, are in deeper trouble than advanced economies who can afford more, and they would still be able to afford more. Uh, second, but in advanced economies, uh, the divide is largely domestic internally. And there's been, in, 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 from my perspective, many countries, uh, first and foremost, the United States, but, but the internal divisions in those countries, the internal tensions in those countries across multiple, uh, uh, multiple angles from, from an economic point of view, political point of view, uh, uh, that came to the foreground in a crisis such as, uh, such as the, the COVID crisis. And, and, and that is quite, quite troublesome, uh, despite the fact that the policy reactions on the macro side have been quite positive. The underlying 
tensions and fissures that, that have emerged in, in, in those economies uh, is, uh, is, is going to be a, a, a major political task to overcome those in the next five or 10 years, and maybe it will take even longer. So Bert, I guess I should ask a supplemental question around that. So we had worries about debt coming into this crisis. And if anything, the legacy of this crisis would be even greater debt. Uh, and uh, unless we have very strong growth and or high inflation, I mean, this is going to be a very big drag to global growth going forward. Uh, it's a bigger drag for emerging market than DM because they have exorbitant privilege and we don't. Um, look, I, I do think it's going to be more of a problem for emerging markets, uh, even though the levels are much lower than the advanced economies, uh, uh, but simply because indeed the, the, the overall credit worthiness is a bit uh, is a bit less. At the same time, of course, growth potential in emerging markets is higher than in than in advanced economies, so they can grow out of the problems if they don't do well. There's a number of countries that need help. And clearly, the focus is already there. The G20 initiative is already there. The country is a little bit hesitant to actually make use of the initiative, but but uh, it's uh, it's it's the right thing to do. It's the right thing to reschedule. It doesn't cost anything at this point in time. I mean, uh, uh, organizations such as the World Bank, but also bilateral countries that have lent to to uh, to to emerging economies, they can borrow at zero percent. So why not? Why, why not reschedule a little bit? Uh, World Bank doesn't do that, uh, but I, I've always argued that it would be a good idea. But but so, so there's, a, there's there's a temporary problem, and the longer term problem it, it really depends on 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 what the what the new normal is, because we also have to recognize that global interest rates have come down even further, even further than before COVID. In COVID, uh, before COVID, they had already come down. And that was, of course, one of the main reasons why there was so much borrowing ongoing from developing economies, both government, but particularly companies. How is that going to end up after COVID? Uh, in, in my view, but I'm not the greatest expert in the world, but in my view, you, you would go back to a, to a very low interest rate environment for a very long time. So in that sense, the affordability of debt uh, is is greater than it was say 10 years ago and uh, so so some countries yes have problems but others may may well be able to grow out of the problem uh, over over time and it does not necessarily need that much inflation right no, but i personally worry that the recovery of uh, the last two three quarters have been underwritten by an extremely generous fed pumping a lot of dollar liquidity in the world and we in the emerging markets have sort of benefited from that if the U.S. starts to sort of normalize uh, one year, two years down the road, uh, it may still caught the rest of the world in, in a difficult bind uh, when that liquidity sort of ebbs. So, but with that context in mind, your outlook for the next 12 months uh, for the global economy? Uh, so I, I agree that that is a risk. I, I think that risk is not in the immediate horizon and I wouldn't put it in the first 12 months. I would put that beyond that. Okay. Yes, there's a little bit of a an upward drift in, 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 in US Treasury yields uh, on the longer end now, but that is quite modest from say, say just below 1% to 1.3 on the 10 year. That is not, that is not a dramatic move that would, that would topple any, 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 uh, uh, any country. Simply before COVID, 
that was already beyond uh, beyond two. So so it had come down dramatically, and now it's coming up a little bit. But that normalization factor, as I said, I, th I think. There's, there's not going to be much normalization in the coming 12 months in, in the monetary policies in, in, in either the US or in the euro area. Um, uh, the, the outlook by itself still depends a lot on how COVID will be handled. And, and in, in, for emerging economies, it's for both sides, because you, you still need to have advanced economies to do things well in order to be able to fully recover. So you have to do your own business well, and then you have to do, have to get the the, the boost from from a recovery in the advanced economies. Um, this the signs are reasonably okay. Uh, vaccination is taking off, and that is going to be an important factor. There's a there's a dearth of vaccines, which surprised me. I thought that. It had been debated sufficiently, and I thought there was enough capacity, but there still seems to be capacity constraints in vaccination, vaccine production. Uh, but but there, you will see a recovery there. The uh, impact of, I mean, you clearly see the number of cases coming down quite dramatically for other reasons as well, because there's now more serious measures in most of Western Europe. There's much better signaling in the United States, we now have a president that wears a mask and says that wearing a mask is a good idea. And, and it's absolutely dramatic on how, how you saw the peak of new infections uh, from early January when Biden starts to message us as the incoming president. Uh, you, you see a dramatic decline in, in, the new, in the new infections, which then translates into, into, a, better, into a better economic environment. So, so uh, uh, look, look, I, I can't beat the projections of the IMF or the World Bank, so I just, I just follow them, and and they should, they look at a, at a quite a, a sharp, a sharp recovery, of the world economy to to five and a half percent the world output for for that the IMF projects, the World Bank projects it much lower because they they use, different weights, uh, the the IMF uses PPP weights and the World Bank does not. But so uh, quite a sharp recovery from the minus from the minus three and a half percent of last year, uh, but still well below where the world and where most countries would have been if there wouldn't have been COVID. And 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 that recovery will if if that ever comes, but will will take a very very long time. The, the World Bank projected that by the end of 2022 there would still be a, a five percentage point. On a per capita basis, a five percentage point deficit uh, uh, of where the economy will be compared to where they would have been without without COVID. So it it it's it's been a very deep hit of the world economy, and it's one that's going to last longer. And there there uh, and I, I still believe that the we're we're again in February. That's early days in a year and. Uh, given the experience of last year, I don't, I don't dare to do too much projections. But, but I said this, the, the signs are in the right direction. The policies are in the right direction. The vaccines will make a big difference, and then there's a few sectors that will take that will take longer. I, uh, I don't see myself travel that much uh, uh, this year, and maybe never. That is one of these things, one of these areas where you see more permanent shifts 
in, in the economy. And uh, look, I'm in academia, but even businesses sort of think, okay, well, do we still need all that business travel? And if not, how will that look like? Similarly, discussions on, on offices and office space and, 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 and data commutes and uh, uh, maybe the world post-COVID will look different because we are now used to very different means of of working and 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 communicating. Right, nothing like a crisis to galvanize focus on those disruptions that certainly get disrupted uh, or accelerated during the course of those crises. Um, Bert, uh, you know, you and I both have followed Indonesia for a while. Uh, I remember in the aftermath aftermath of the 1997 Asian financial crisis. Indonesia went through a long-term decline. I mean, it was a decade before the banking system was in a position to re-leverage itself. Even at the public sector level, you know, there was a huge protracted deleveraging and left a lot of scarring and, and it took a very long time for Indonesia to sort of get back on its feet. Now, this crisis is not like that crisis because of the historic sort of counter-cyclical response. We are seeing, you know, no huge, you know, outbreak of bankruptcies banks look you know relatively healthy i'm generalizing across the world but i see i think you get my point um so then do we not should we not worry that much about long-term scarring and huge permanent loss in output out of this COVID crisis well uh, as i already indicated first you have this structural shift which one can accommodate uh, uh, by over time that there will simply be a different structure in, in the economy and, and, and countries such as Indonesia, they're, they're, they're pretty far ahead. I mean, they're, they're much more online than, than, than uh, I would say, uh, my country back home, the Netherlands or lots of European countries. So uh, the, the, uh, the scarring will come well, on the one hand on, on how do, on, on, on the shape in which companies come out of this crisis. And a lot of companies, they're only holding by just with some government support. At some point, that will probably end. Will they have the strength to do the new investments to, to, to that 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 give a strong boost to the to the recovery? And that may that may give a longer term that may give a longer term scarring. So the the recovery therefore would be flatter. The second where. Uh, and, and I and I reveal my background. What, what I quite worried about is is the impact on the education system. We don't know what it is, but but there's been a major disruption of education around the world uh, in developing as well as in developed countries. And what does that mean for the generation of people that that now uh, that that was in school that was supposed to be in school uh, that had to go from a, a, a face to face to an remote online learning with frankly teachers that didn't have that much experience uh, in, in, in doing so and how much does that how much does it affect the learning capabilities of that of that generation and that could that could set back uh, economies maybe not dramatically but it, it, it could create problems down 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 the line. The third that I'm most worried about, more for advanced than for developing economies, even though developing economies are affected by these divisions that we talk about, but, but it's the political fallout. And it's the political fallout of, of COVID and the fighting of COVID and the perceived or real increases in inequalities that have been created by, because of the renewed stimulus, because of the additional liquidity in the system. Uh, and there, there I would say that that, that 
that that will be difficult to handle, and that also means that 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 you can foresee more political disruption in developing developing economies alike. Uh, the discussion in Indonesia to come back to to go back to Indonesia are quite quite heated on on government policy and and, and whether it was right and I think it's now in the right direction. Uh, uh, but but it took a while before there was a, a clear a clear policy. Again, internal divisions between central government and and, and regional governments played a role there. So so the, the, these are the divisions that would need to be that would need to be addressed for a, a robust a robust recovery in my view. Final well, point, uh, and 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 that is something that that. Um, I don't know how to how to how to judge that, but but of course, a lot of advanced economies have done lots of unconventional stuff. Uh, a lot of it was already done in response to the global financial crisis. A lot of the unconventional policies have come gradually into place after the global financial crisis. This time, it's also emerging economies that have started to do it. And again, the the example of Indonesia, but there's a number of countries that have started to basically use the central bank to finance or to at least to to have the financial uh, the, the the central bank acquire uh, a lot of government paper and will that in the end will that undermine the 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 discipline in policies that that uh, at least people from 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 the old school like me uh, uh, see as beneficial for developing economies in the longer run. Similarly, Indonesia's new idea of a, of a sovereign wealth fund is something uh, that, that I, would, I would closely watch to see how that is going to be constituted, because I think the big idea is to actually borrow for, to fill the sovereign wealth fund. And then for me, that's not a sovereign wealth fund, but it's an investment fund. And that's very different from the sovereign wealth fund, such as the ones that we see here or in Nor in Singapore or in Norway or in some other some other places around the world. So so this 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 shift in 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 thinking about what proper government policies is, and I think the scope has been broadened, with advanced economies taking the lead. But is it right for developing economies to follow that? Is is that or or are we building up to a major problem five or 10 years down the road. I think it's a, it's a question for now that I have on my mind uh, and, and time will tell. But it's a profoundly important question because the role of the public sector uh, is without any question, you know, getting larger as we speak. And uh, the, the ability and the, the capability or rather the capability of the public sector to manage that broader uh, responsibility and broader control of the economy, both in the developed and developing markets. I think it's a very big question, uh, but uh, but it seems like you know we're heading in that direction for better or for worse. Um, I worry a bit about uh, the, a point that I sort of alluded to earlier. I, it seems to me that you may not be that worried about it in the near term, which is this notion of rates going up in the US and a dollar liquidity crisis. But even in the absence of a macroeconomic dynamic like that, uh, there are a few non-Asian emerging market companies that are on the brink of a debt crisis. I mean, I have Argentina in mind, South Africa, Turkey, a few other countries which have entered this crisis with very weak fundamentals. So if we were to see a fairly large scale non-Asian EM crisis this year, 
could the ripple effect of that hurt uh, Asian outlook this year? Well, traditionally, it, it has always hurt a, a, a number of countries, a number of shortlisted countries. Uh, at, at some point, I think they were called, but well, that was in, in uh, let, let me not let me not speculate on names, but Indonesia was on, on, on one of those lists, Turkey is on one of those lists. So emerging economies that, that rely to some extent on external finances. Looking at the data, I've always felt that, that, that uh, it is indeed contagion rather than reality that sometimes gives those ripple effects because Indonesia, after the, after the Asia financial crisis, it took them a long time, but they came out very, very solidly. So I'm always surprised that every time there is something happening in the emerging world, that Indonesia seems to have some, uh, some fallout of that. Uh, some other countries are a little bit on the brink, and there's no, no question that they are vulnerable. Whether that would add up to a, to a uh, if you want, a global effect, a global impact, I, I find that hard to imagine. It's for two reasons. One is actually there's quite a bit of policy action being taken to try and prevent bad things from happening. And there's a certain amount of understanding tolerance that, yes, there has been this massive COVID event. So, so we need to find solutions for indebted countries rather than rather than uh, taking, taking them to the cleaners. And that is a very positive attitude. Uh, uh, and uh, said, uh, as as the G20 as the G20 fell, uh, and 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 if if the world economy recovers the way the IMF projects, that may give quite a bit of quite a bit of relief as well, uh, and and there would be possibilities for those countries that are currently facing problems to recover some of the lost ground and maybe maybe get get a bit more stable. So so I'm not I'm not trying to 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 downplay the problem. It requires a lot of policy action, but I also know that there's quite a bit of policy attention to those issues at this point in time. Indeed, indeed there is. Um, let's uh, switch to China. A year ago when we were chatting, uh, you were sort of ahead of the curve. You were very worried about the first quarter outlook for China, uh, and and it turned out to be you know the worst quarter that China has seen in recent memory. Uh, but then they came back. So what's your score for, scorecard for China for all of 2020? Well, uh, it's interesting because because I, I I was listening this morning in preparation for this podcast to the to the podcast, and I called and that was very early but i called on on in february i called for a minus 10 in the first quarter it turned out to be minus six point something so not as bad as i had expected but that was because at that point there was imperfect information uh, and then i had expected a very sharp recovery in the second quarter basically a la sars that recovery was not as strong so overall china comes out with 2.3 percent uh, of course, if you would have asked that before the year, you would not have, uh, we would not have signed up for it. But if you would have, uh, by February, I'm sure the authorities would have said, sure, we take 2.3% and we would be happy with that. So in that sense, China has done relatively well. Uh, I think they have done, uh, one reason why it, it, it didn't get more than 2.3% is that they have been reasonably measured in their stimulus and we had a discussion last year on sort of what are they going to do in stimulus and is that going to be as massive as it was after the global financial crisis and what would the effects be i was at that point saying well maybe maybe not because it, it may just simply not work in an environment 
created by COVID. That was pure speculation. But I think that was more or less right. And, and on the fiscal side, despite the fact that they announced a pretty large package in May, when, the, when their parliament met, in the end, the, 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 the stimulus was not as strong, in part because there was quite a strong recovery in the economy itself for two reasons. The main one being uh, on the export side. Because China was that quickly out of the crisis due to a very sharp lockdown, they started producing very early on, whereas at that point, the rest of the world was affected. So their export performance was really quite stunning. Uh, over uh, 2020, and that pulled in part the economy out of uh, out of the out of the negative. And second, yes, there was some more classic investment stimulus. Uh, I'd say the only the the only the only negative point, or I mean, one of the negative points is that that uh, the COVID crisis really revealed that China has a lot to do still on its safety net. Uh, the population that got most hit by the crisis were the migrant workers. A lot of them could not come back to their jobs because they were locked out of the big cities and and uh, simply and and there was very little stimulus for them available. Uh, and the local the local welfare payments are very very minimal. So so you see you 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 saw a a, a rebound in in investment demand, a rebound in export demand but much less so in consumption, much less so in consumption. I do expect that to, to uh, uh, be almost the other way around this year, but nevertheless, uh, I think that's a, an area where, where, where China needs to work on because they want more consumption. They want to see consumption drive more of demand uh, in, in, in the future. And, and simply the, the, the systems are not, are not there yet. So, so that's the one thing there where I say, uh, China's done well, but it has work to do on the safety net. Right. And of course, a stronger safety net or a more resilient Chinese economy would be sort of more domestic demand oriented, which brings me to this phrase, dual circulation strategy. Every couple of years, China introduces one more phrase to the world. So now it's all about dual circulation. So tell us about the essence of internal circulation and external circulation in China. Right, right, right. Well, I mean, China has this, I think, has this great and interesting capacity to come up with new thoughts that are that are sort of broad banners under which then specific policies gradually find their place. So in that sense, it, it's very important to, to note. Uh, it, the term was introduced by Xi Jinping in, uh, it was actually a Politburo meeting, uh, May 2020. And then it is in the recommendations of the party to the government on the 14 five-year plan. So once the 14 five-year plan is going to be released next month, I'm sure we'll find a lot of dual circulation in that. So what's what's the idea? Well, uh, and the idea is, is uh, to deal with, if you want, China in, in its next phase of growth, but also to deal with a, a very different external environment for China. So the dual circulation emphasizes you need more domestic demand and within that more consumption as a driver of demand, uh, a, a, a optimization or extension of domestic supply chains, not necessarily Chinese, but domestic supply chains for critical 
for critical products, for the critical bottlenecks in the economy, and more reliance on domestic innovation or indigenous innovation, as the Chinese like to call that. So, and, and of course, if you look at the the world uh, in, in, in May 2020, uh, there was a trade war going on with the United States, a tech war going on with the United States, a, a big risk that, that China would be locked out of uh, a lot of critical technologies and companies such as Huawei and others, they, they, really, feel the, they really feel the pitch. And so the idea was, okay, so let's, let's try and rely more on, the, on our domestic technology and also let's beef up this domestic demand so that we don't rely, have to rely that much on external markets because they're fickle and who knows what the next, what the next measure of, of Trump will be. And so that was sort of the environment, the complex external environment as China would like to call that, uh, in, in which they formulated this, 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 new, this new approach. I looked a little bit at the numbers and to some extent, this is a, a confirmation of all the things that were already happening, i.e. China already relies far less on external demand than before. Then the peak was in 2007 where exports to GDP was 37% of GDP, now it's 18. Uh, total trade to GDP is a little over 30%. Now it used to be over 50%. So, so uh, you see an expansion of the domestic supply chains. We've seen that very strongly really since the WTO entry, but more so since the global financial crisis. So that, that you, you see that the, you can see it in the domestic value added in exports that has been rising. So in other words, China used to import a lot of stuff, assembled it, exported it. Now it's, uh, they import less and more is domestically produced and that then goes into exports. So the domestic content of exports has increased even though export to GDP has, has come down. And third, they've done, they've done very well in, in getting um, up to speed on, on innovation. And if you look at overall R&D spending, it's now, it, it hasn't met the target of the 13 five-year plan, but it's close something like 2.3% of GDP, the target was 2.5. Um, uh, and if you look at the outputs of that, of that uh, uh, money, you see a huge amount of patents and you see a huge amount of articles published as, as, as being in academia, I see that as an output. Uh, but if once you look closer, there's still some weaknesses and, and the, 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 the quality of patents is not yet that high. Uh, it is far more on the, on the utility patents, sort of more the development new products rather than the more fundamental breakthroughs research that, uh, that, uh, that in the end you need to make, to make, to make uh, uh, completely new technologies. And, and you know, a lot of the academic uh, uh, output is, is not very well widely cited, and that means that the quality is still, still, uh, uh, still leaves something to be desired. But nevertheless, they've been catching up. Still, I do think that that is still the critical bottleneck for China. So, so they're catching up. But, but if you look at and and others have been writing about this quite eloquently. Uh, but if you look at sort of what is really needed to, to, to do good research and development and to 
bring new breakthroughs. It takes 20, 30 years of experience in a particular area to actually get there. So if I, and I did some numbers to just play around, if you, if you add up the last 30 years of R&D spending in China and, and discount the early years and, and do the same for the US and the OECD countries, you get, very, you get a very different picture. And China is still very much a beginning player. So if you look at it on a year by year, it looks pretty good. China, 20% of OECD spending, more or less, over what the total OECD spends. But if you do accumulated spending on R&D over the past 30 years, China becomes like 5 6% of total spending. So, so the message, therefore, is that that is still, if you want, the, the, what, the weak side is what China, China has a lot to catch up. And where China benefits the most of interaction with, with, with other countries and interaction with the international research community, because that's where, that's where uh, China still has a lot to learn. Absolutely, Bert. I think uh, one sector where your, your point is illustrated vividly is the development of the next generation of semiconductor chips, where China still needs probably half a decade, if not longer, of expertise trial by doing before they can make the things that are absolutely current. Till then, they will remain a couple of generations behind the TSMCs of the world. Right. And, and what, what China's reaction to some of this is interesting, but also quite adventurous. So they say, well, quantum computing is the next right. generation. And that's true. Yeah. There's no question that that is true. But don't forget that going from the transistor that was introduced in the, in the 50s to the integrated circuit, it took 25 years of development as well. Before you, before you got to the chips that could that could really drive, uh, uh, if you want the the IT revolution that we've seen since. So I think that is a bit sort of over the horizon. It's good that China and other countries are investing in it because it, it would be a, a new frontier. But just one experiment uh, and having some success doesn't mean that 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 we're about to have a breakthrough. And 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 and, and that's fair. And I think that's recognized in China. For China, it's important to to think about their own innovation system. And on on the plus side, I think they do very well in terms of in terms of company innovation. So a lot the, the Huawei's of the world, the Alibaba's, the Tencent's, and we, we all know them. They do enormous amounts of investment in R&D, and it shows because fintech is is great. Uh, the Huawei is is uh, a very successful company in many in many ways. Uh, so that that investment pays off. But to come to those more fundamental breakthroughs, the foundational technologies, you need the research labs. You need the you know the China Academy of Sciences to to figure out new things and. Uh, uh, like the national labs in the U.S. that have, have been, been tremendously powerful in that in that respect, uh, that requires a stronger a stronger innovation system. Uh, and and uh, again, it's it's learning by doing, and China is is working on that. I don't think we're there to sort of say yes, they've already done all the things very efficiently. There's a lot of inefficiencies. So of that two and a half percent, it's probably fair to say that maybe not all that two and a half percent is very is well spent. Yeah, fair enough. Uh, but the other area of innovation, research and development is area around uh, alternative energy, electric vehicles, the whole climate change agenda, where China over the last decade has been very successful in terms of becoming world leader in the production of solar cells and, uh, you know, being able to sort of, you know, 
reduce emission to some extent and now have set multi-decade very ambitious you know zero emission uh, uh, targets so you're alluding to the next five-year plan would that also have major push toward climate change uh, it's interesting so my, my i'm firmly convinced that yes it will interesting enough though um, in the recommendations of the party of the fifth plenum of the 19th central committee last october that didn't play a role so Xi Jinping makes this very big commitment at the UN and says, we're going to go to zero emission, net zero emission, because carbon capture will play some role uh, by 2060. And, and up until now, that hasn't really sort of translated into, so what are we going to do? But I, I'm firmly convinced China has its targets, as announced in the part of the Paris Agreement, to reduce intensity carbon intensity of the economy and to have peak carbon by or before 2030. And those are the, those are the commitments. The 2060 commitment requires to have a very different path even by 2030. <coughs> Excuse me. Just to give a, a concrete example, you, you shouldn't really build any coal-fired plants anymore, aside from the fact that China has overcapacity in it. But coal-fired plant, they last for 50 years, and you don't you don't want to have uh, those coal-fired plants on the books by the time you come to zero emission. Um, so I expect to see a, a much more aggressive policy in the in the five-year plan, and if not, the, the, that would be that would be um, a risk that China faces because then they might get behind on that on that very ambitious target. Would they be able to, 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 to do so? I, I think so. Uh, the technologies that are becoming gradually available uh, uh, and where China has strength in, in the development of those technologies, as you already mentioned, uh, solar is definitely, is definitely one. Uh, I think the whole hydrogen economy is going to be part of that. Uh, whether for automotive, I don't know, but definitely for indus industrial applications, it will play, it will play a big role. Uh, and then even even uh, uh, techniques such as carbon capture, where where we're only at the beginning of of developments, and where where we where we know that a fair amount of carbon still needs to be captured in order to meet to meet the the, the, the net zero targets, but more importantly to stay below, say a two degrees uh, a two degrees increase in temperature. So, uh, and China, because of its very strong industrial base simply has a very big advantage. I mean, a lot of the, maybe not a lot of the fundamental research is going to come from China, just like in solar, the fundamental research did not come from China. Uh, it came from Australia, it came from Germany, it came from other places, but China just because of its scale had this competitive advantage to bring this to, bring this to a cost level that is now competitive, almost competitive with, uh, with uh, carbon, uh, carbon fuel. So, so similar effects could happen going forward in those newer in those newer technologies and that would be exciting for the world important for the world and it, it's one more reason to work together but not in a broad not just in a broad sense but also in a very specific technologies and development of technology and development of new industrial processes that can that can use those technologies that uh, that would help us fight climate change 
Right, work together part is key. And when I talk to you about China-US relationship momentarily, I would want to come back to that issue of the possibility of collaboration between China and the US on climate change. But before I get there, one final point on this technology and innovation side where we're seeing major changes is in the space of digital currency. And it seems like China is a bit ahead of the curve. They have their ERMB initiative. They're trying to have a digital clearinghouse for all the digital payments that take place because it seems like at the M1 level, there is some problem of conducting monetary policy when all these fintechs are receiving deposits and extending loans and so on. So where do you see China going with this whole uh, ERMB initiative? Right, so I, uh, I mean, I think they have a domestic reason for developing uh, this, and, and that's in part indeed, as you say, to, to, to maintain some level of control over, over monetary policy. Um, China's digital payment is far ahead of almost any other country in the world, and that's because of the 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 uh, the and finance, the Alipays, uh, uh, the Weixing. Uh, uh, payment systems privately privately developed uh, already, um, but it 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 I think it's been f fair to say that the central bank has been uncomfortable about that situation for a while in part because there's been maybe money creation going on or if not money creation at least the the whole velocity of money has changed because of those emerging payment system and I think it's a matter of uh, uh, China's central bank already asked the big payment providers to clear their payments through the central bank. So and that's a matter of having also access to information. But I think that the digital currency is the next is the next step in that. I think that it can coins uh, coexist with with the the Alipay's and the, the Weixing's of the world. So, uh, but but it gives a bit more comfort that there is an alternative. Uh, I think the People's Bank is more uh, has, a, has a comfort level there. But I think one of the boosts that really triggered China to start experimenting was the alternatives out there and the the the, the alternatives that were floating around. On the one end, we have Bitcoin, but that is a very speculative thing. But uh, when Facebook started to uh, propagate its own currency, its own digital currency of payment vehicle. I think there was a certain concern from China that that might come to China and, and then they would lose further control. On the positive side, I do think that China sees some opportunities. It's unclear how for now, but that sees some opportunities. If they have this digital currency developed, if they have, if you want the technology ready, if they have the the protocols ready, that might also help the internationalization of the RMB at some point. Uh, as I said, you know, there, there is digital RMB already available. That it's called bank transfers, so you don't need you don't need that that retail level payment system for that matter. But at the same time, not being in that game uh, is is probably not a wise choice for 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 China at this at this point in time. Remains to be seen because on what, how big an influence this will have in international payments, uh, but I think for now the objectives are largely domestic. Right. I sometimes wonder that what prevents traders sitting in a country in Africa 
of carrying out transactions with their counterparts in China using a Huawei e-wallet and completely circumvent the central bank's uh, monitoring and oversight if they're willing to accept RMB as a payment. Right. So, but it, it would be a regulatory uh, barrier that, that wouldn't change. So you would still see, and, and just today there was an announcement that I think it was Dubai that was going to look at a joint initiative with the People's Bank, but Singapore is also interested in seeing whether Singapore could accept a digital RMB as a payment system, and then maybe in exchange for China accepting a digital Singapore dollar. I don't know that last part, but but uh, I said it would still require a regulatory approval because a digital RMB is not a legal tender in Zambia or, or in Singapore for that matter. So, so I said there's still a regulatory barrier to some extent, uh, but it opens up much more opportunities uh, in, in, if, if you have a, a Weixing account and I have one, and we, we can already transfer RMBs as far as I can see. But uh, it, it, I said the underlying legalities are different, but, uh, but the, the opportunity is already there. Yes, yes, no, absolutely. And I think that, you know, I mean, as you said earlier, that in terms of making the RMB more acceptable, um, even if it's not as a legal tender, but as a convertible currency, I think this is a much more profound tool potentially than the SDR inclusion. If, 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 if the digital RMB is simply going to be able to deliver far more efficient and low cost international payment services, that's a winner. Because that's how Alibaba started back home or Weixing back home, simply because it was a far better alternative than anything they could get from the banks. Uh, even at that point, credit cards. Now credit cards have evolved and debit cards have evolved. They're quite convenient now for retail payments. But when, when, when the, digital, the digital payment started, it was, it was less so. So they had a better mousetrap and that mousetrap caught on. That may be the way in which the digital RMB will start playing a role in international payments. Very, very interesting times. Bert, finally, China-US. Four years of trade war, hopefully, you know, are behind us. But is there going to be a status quo ante going back to the Obama years? Or we have crossed the Rubicon and serious antagonism between China and US is just going to be fait accompli? Well, I think, I think we crossed the Rubicon. and and. All of the signals that come from the Biden government uh, point in that direction. So, so this could, it's going to be a much more competitive environment. There will be cooperation, and the, the U.S. will seek cooperation. And there might well, very well, some good areas in which there is much more uh, cooperation rather than competition. But, but there will be more competition, and how far that goes remains to be seen. I do think that that a, a number of measures. Maybe not so much across the board and not, and not so flippant as was done under Trump, but in a number of areas there is concerns and technology is the first and foremost, in part of course because of the, the military application of some of the technologies. That's not too different from, from what we knew in the past, as in the fact that that's a regime that is quite familiar to, to the US that they, that they prevent some technologies going out. Uh, that's different from Sort of having an across-the-board uh, 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 tech war because that uh, uh, that's far more damaging to the world economy. 
if a Biden administration manages to define sort of specific areas, as they say, small, small, small yards with high fences. That's what we're looking for. The yards need to be small and then the fences can be high. And then much of the rest of the world economy can continue to, can continue to function. That would be a good outcome, I think. And it is a reality that, that the US and, and, and China being the number one, the number two are, are potential competitors for, for power in the world. Uh, and that has consequences for for the the type of policies that uh, that, uh, that that both countries that both countries implement. And, and mind you, China is also building up some of its arsenal of defense against against uh, 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 sort of inappropriate use of its technology that's also uh, developing. Europe similarly so. Europe is now compared to three four years ago, it, it has it has erected some of those fences that it that it never had and and the main if you want the main defenses against some of the the, the ambitions that china had to acquire european technologies so so uh, some of that you'll see uh, as long as it stays within within reason that is quite all right there's a broader agenda, and, and that's more difficult to handle, and I'm definitely not the specialist, but that is the human rights, it's the value agenda, uh, where clearly uh, Biden has a very different agenda from Trump. He is reaching out, back reaching out to, to his allies. The, his main message in the Munich uh, Security Conference was, America's back, and please be with us, and we support NATO, and we, we support Article 5, i.e. an attack against one is an attack against all all these things that, that Trump has sort of put in doubt, uh, uh, Biden is very clear about it. What the message will be vis-a-vis -vis Asia is really interesting. And there, and there, of course, China, in a way, has used the absence of Trump, the Trump administration, in Asia to build up uh, its connection, to deepen its economic ties, to solidify the ties through RCEP, and, and even have ambition to, to join the CPTPP, uh, a child of Obama, but now potentially, potentially adopted by China as the next phase of, 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 of trade agreement, the deeper sort of 21st century trade agreements. RCEP is, is less ambitious in, in, in that respect. But, but nevertheless, I mean, and Asian countries have been very clear that they're perfectly comfortable to line up with China economically, despite the fact that the US and China were fighting uh, not just a trade war, but a tech war. And, and in the final months of the Trump administration, quite an ideological war, if I were to phrase it. So, so uh, how Biden will approach that remains to be seen. It's not so easy because he can't go back politically, he can't go back to CPTPP, at least not not in his first year or first years, and so so what would be Biden's sort of economic alternative to China's influence in the region is is going to be a big question for the Biden administration. Yeah, and and it's, it, these are sobering thoughts, Bert, because I feel like you know Donald Trump not only closed the door as far as you know his administration's dealing with China on a variety of matters. He made the road so difficult for this current administration. 
that, uh, and then it seems to me that there are certain narratives that are anti-Chinese are sort of consensus bipartisan in the US right now, that even a president who sees the wisdom of detente and constructive engagement will have a hard time convincing Washington DC crowd to some extent. Bert, uh, one year ago, you were with us at the inaugural episode of uh, Kopi Time and you're with us today and for both, I thank you so very much. Thank you for having me again and congratulations on a, on a great product. It re has really taken off the coffee time. And I see that uh, there's been many luminaries after me that have drawn great crowds. So congratulations to you. Thank you so much. Have a great day, Bart. Thanks to our listeners too. Kopi Time was produced by Martin Taki. Daisy Sharma and Violet Lee provided additional assistance. It is for information only and does not represent any trade recommendations. All 46 episodes of Kopi Time are available on YouTube and on all major podcast platforms, including Apple, Google, and Spotify. As for our research publications, webinars, and live streams, you can find them all by Googling DBS Research Library. Have a great day. Thanks for your loyalty.